Thank you for choosing OECD podcast. Welcome to OECD podcast, where policy meets people. I'm Clara Young, and I'm sitting in the studio here at the OECD with Daniel Trilling. Daniel is a journalist and author of the book Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe, which was published this spring. Daniel reports on refugees, migration, racism, and the evolution of the far right for publications like the New York Times, Al Jazeera, London Review of Books, and New Statesman. He's also the editor of New Humanist and winner of the 2017 Migration Media Award. So thanks for coming to the OECD, Daniel. Thank you. Since the summer of 2015, the world has put a spotlight on the refugee crisis. But in your book, Lights in the Distance, you had been writing about refugees well before that. You've been writing about a number of people, refugees and migrants, that you had met over the past six years living in Europe. And you met them in Calais, France, in Sicily, in Athens, Greece, in Bulgaria, and a number of other places. We don't have time to go into the stories of all of the people in your book, but maybe you could tell the story of one or two of them. Yeah, so the reason I got interested in the subject and the way I tried to shape my research at the beginning was because I was very interested in exploring this border system that has grown up around the edges of the European Union, um, kind of as a trade-off for free movement within the EU. Um, and that's a process that's been underway since the 1990s. And initially, I saw borders as a kind, you know, a case of geographical edges of territories, fences, surveillance, patrols, soldiers, and the rest of it, which is, I think, probably how most of us think about borders most of the time. Right. But when I began to meet people who were in the process of trying to cross into the EU or had recently arrived and were trying to claim asylum in different countries, it made me realise just how much actually... Borders are as much to do with kind of legal and political frameworks and they're really systems for filtering people from one another that stretch right into the heart of territories or, as the EU has you know, increasingly done, go way beyond the physical borders of a territory or a state. You mean by, for example, uh, in Libya... Yeah, precisely. So, I mean, Libya is where the EU has been trying to establish a kind of externalised border and it it isn't working because Libya is too unstable. But you could also take the EU-Turkey deal that that launched in 2016, Mm -hmm. for example. But what made me understand that was getting to know individuals and families and groups of people who were travelling across those borders. And so it became really important to me to follow those people that I'd met and learn more about them and why they were trying to take particular decisions. For example, to take the case of a a young man originally from Sudan who I met while I was reporting in Calais, he's called Jamal. He came to Europe at the age of 18, but he was 24 or so by the time I'd met him in Calais and he'd spent five or six years in Europe with no settled status of any kind no real documentation was had kind of you know spent his entire adult life essentially living as an undocumented migrant within the European Union and had had built up all of this knowledge about how to survive in situations like that and a story like his was really important to me because it shows how 
that kind of migration, you know, sort of refugee movements, people seeking asylum, um, other kinds of migrants that are using clandestine or informal routes, people often described and dismissed as illegal immigrants. Um, there's a whole lot of language and laws and policy around those people that tries to fit them into these very definite and very distinct categories. You know, the main one that you see in media coverage all the time being genuine refugee versus economic migrant. But Jamal's story and the story of other people in the book really showed me how actually on the ground, seen from the perspective of people trying to travel, those categories really start to break down, people slip in and out of them all of the time. So, you know, Jamal fled Sudan because he was being persecuted by the police, which under most refugee legal systems is a legitimate grounds for some kind of protection. Right. But he entered Europe with the help of smugglers, which you know, some politicians would condemn as illegal immigration. Then in Europe, he was trying to find a place where he could really claim asylum and have his case heard fairly, and he couldn't, so he was moving around, sort of basically being bounced from place to place according to wherever he thought he might get a good, you know, a fair hearing or even just the basics like food and shelter. So the whole time he was waiting for his papers, he was waiting to be qualified as a refugee? Uh, for some of it, I mean, he got caught up in Greece's asylum system where his case just wasn't being heard. Then he was told by other Sudanese refugees that he should go to the UK because, and this is this is a, a thing that I think people in Western Europe forget all of the time. From the perspective of the Sudanese, they already had a connection to the UK because Britain was the former colonial power in Sudan. They said, well, they'll bound they'll. They'll be bound to treat us better than other countries because we've got this link. I think to most British citizens, they wouldn't even know that that link was there. So, you know, his decisions are being led by a mix of sort of pragmatic decision-making according to his circumstances and then whatever other bits of information he can hang on to. You know, if I get to Britain, will I get my asylum claim heard fairly? I mean, what he really wanted to do was just get somewhere where he could study because he had left school in the middle of his teens and really wanted to go back and wanted to go to college. Again, he spoke English, so Britain was sort of an obvious choice in that respect. But the system worked against him because the way the EU's common asylum system works is you're supposed to stay in the country where you first set foot. So, you know, then it becomes much more ambiguous. As what Jamal is doing, being a refugee, being a migrant, being, you know, well, it's, I mean, it's both, it's all of those things. And that was the case really for everybody that I encountered in the course of the book. The UN uh, Global Compact for Safe and Orderly and Regular Migration is addressing this problem of information and that there is clear information to asylum seekers on uh, ways to apply for refugee status. Uh, There just seems to be a lot of rumors and misunderstanding and lots of stories circulating among people, migrants themselves, about, oh, well, you know, it will work here, you will get your papers here, and people moving all over the place, and poor information. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. I think um, what's important, though, is to think about what are the conditions that are creating this kind of moving around something that's often dismissed described pejoratively as asylum shopping Mm. but why do people feel that they need to even do that in the first place and there are some kind of overarching shifts in the way that the world is dealing with refugees and dealing with migration that I think are causing that so one is that rich countries have really been trying to close down safe and legal routes to asylum in the last decade or two and that means that on the one hand, proper UN-backed refugee resettlement programs in you know have have always been slow and underfunded, but there's been sort of like active hostility to them in the last few years. So you've got that first of all, where the richer parts of the world are to actually 
actually taking a lower share of the world's refugees than they were a decade or so ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the UN estimates that something like 86% of the world's refugees are hosted in developing countries now, whereas a, just over a decade ago it was 70%. So... Um, I think Jordan is the country that hosts the most Yeah, I mean, and certainly with the Syria conflict, you've seen Mm -hmm. that picture, absolutely. It's been Syria's neighbours, Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey, who have Mm -hmm. taken the vast majority of people who fled Syria. And then on top of that, you then have the question of, well, you know, if you're displaced, obviously by conflict or or oppression, um, which would likely make you a refugee under international definitions, you've got your immediate concern, which is to save your life and get to a place of immediate safety. But then none of the other questions that we all have to answer about, well, what is my life going to be? How am I going to find not only a job that pays, keeps me alive, but is fulfilling? How am I going to provide for my children? How am I going to have a sense that I'm part of a community and building and, you know, progressing? Mm. Those questions don't go away. And if... You know, for example, Syria's neighbours are being forced to take the brunt of the Syrian refugee crisis and are unable to provide answers to all of those questions. Well, people are going to think about where else to go. And that's really, you know, what fed into the refugee crisis in Europe over the last few years. Could you describe for us in general, in the day-to-day life of the people that you were following, what was the thing that struck you the most? What are the things that they're doing every day? What did they need? What did they want? What did they not have? Well, I think one thing is just how much the, the sort of decisions they were taking were made on a very pragmatic level. There's a lot of discussion of refugees, both kind of well-meaning and and malicious that sort of treats people as if they're either being pulled by this grand dream or some kind of, you know, huge sort of emotional thing or conversely that they're, you know, they're looking to get a free ride or sort of scheming. A lot of it is much more basic, just like, I'm here, I'm not getting this thing that I consider essential, where do I go to get it? So, um, you know, I've met a lot of people in Sicily, for example, who came many of whom came from West Africa originally for a mix of reasons. Some fled wars, some were travelling around Africa looking for work and got caught up in the conflict in Libya. Some had ideas to come to Europe in the first place. They've arrived in Italy, got stuck in the Italian asylum system, maybe received documents, but that has discovered southern Italy particularly is a place going through a severe economic crisis and there isn't the work for Italian citizens. And then they are doing what Italian citizens in the same situation are doing and thinking, well, this isn't going to work for me here. How do I get to other bits of Europe and carry on working? Right. So that kind of pragmatic decision-making is one thing. The second thing that really came across with the people I met is just how much people want to retain a sense of agency over their own lives. You know, people hate being given handouts and living in this kind of restricted... uh, sort of intermediate zone between, you know, being kind of on the move and being properly settled. Um, And they will grab at all sorts of different things to keep themselves going in that kind of situation. So I can think of one woman I know called Fatima, for example, who's originally from Lagos in Nigeria, Mm -hmm. um, was working in Libya. That was, you know, she had gone to Libya as an economic migrant, had to flee after it just got way too dangerous for black African people in Libya, told herself as she was forced onto an inflatable boat on the beach of the, you know, the shores of the Mediterranean, if I survive this, I'm making a bargain with God that I will devote the rest of my life to raising the alarm about what happened to women who are being trafficked along these routes and become a women's rights activist. You know, she spent her last few years in Europe going from door to door saying, 
let me do this, let me advocate for people, this is like my real mission in life. On the other hand, a young man from Mali that I know called Caesar, who was caught up in the war in Mali in 2012, had a really horrendous experience of about 18 months being passed from trafficker to trafficker in Algeria and Libya, essentially being kept in conditions of slavery, had to look after his younger brother the whole time going through all of this, didn't know if his wife and kid back home were, were alive or dead. He's now in Sicily and, and what he has said to me on, on lots of occasions is I just want the kind of like most boring everyday life possible. I just want to sink into the background, forget about what's happened to me on this on this journey and just start living a life again, you right. know, and eventually be reunited with my family. So it can really differ. You know, sometimes it's political, sometimes it's very personal. But I think it's really important for people who are in charge of kind of designing and administering the systems that govern the movement of refugees and migrants, that they allow room for all of that. Just looking at the situation from you know national governments or city governments, what are three of the most important things that governments can do for migrant populations, you know, in your mind? Well, I think when it comes to refugees, who are obviously not the entirety of a migrant population, mm-hmm. um, adhering to the basic principles of refugee protection is really important so that um, if somebody crosses a border in search of asylum it's not illegal immigration they have got the right to do that and to ask for asylum they shouldn't be punished for it that their asylum claim should be heard fairly and on the basis of their individual merits so people shouldn't just be kind of scooped up and treated like uh, they have a particular nationality therefore they're either genuine refugee or not and also to create and I think crucially because this is what's really lacking in Europe and many other parts of the world at the moment properly fund asylum reception systems so that the processes are quick efficient fair and so on so it minimizes the amount of time people are kept in that kind of limbo you know where they're they're not allowed to act as independent because um, that can last for several years for well, many yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, in you know, particularly in Southern Europe, it could be as much as a decade. And then the final thing is to really avoid being too rigid about the distinction between refugee and other kinds of migrants, because people will always slip in and out of both. And the people that may not meet the criteria for for refugee protection can also have needs that are just as acute. You know, if they've been on the same kind of journeys, if you're a torture survivor, you're a torture survivor. If you've had a traumatic experience crossing the Mediterranean, the trauma will be the same regardless of what criteria you meet within the asylum system and I think it's really important to remember that too. Well thank you very much Daniel and thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young and if you want to hear more about Daniel's book Lights in the Distance Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe listen to a podcast of his reading at shakespeareandcompany.com If you want to find out about OECD's work on migration please go to oecd.org migration And to hear other OECD podcast interviews, go to our SoundCloud page at soundcloud slash OECD.